Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Hello and welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm Andrew Hill, the Chair of Strategic Leadership and the Editor-in-Chief of War Room. Today, I'm privileged and, and pleased to be joined by Professor G.K. Cunningham, who is a professor in the Department of Military Strategy, Planning, and Operations here at the Army War College. G.K. is a retired colonel in the United States Marine Corps. He served in the infantry, was a veteran of 31 years in, in the Marines. G.K., welcome to the War Room Podcast. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. So G.K. and I are both fans of ancient military history, and today we're going to be talking about a fascinating fascinating figure, Hannibal, not the leader of the A-team, but the, the Carthaginian general. So, G.K., who was Hannibal? Hannibal was uh, part of a long family, uh, largely who had its holdings under Carthage in Spain. Uh, we tend to forget sometimes that uh, the city of Barcelona is named after the, his family, the Barcas. So how, how did they... How did that affect his approach to warfare, his background, sort of not being from Carthage, which is in modern-day Tunisia? Um, the Carthaginians came from the Phoenicians, so modern-day Lebanon, where trading people had managed to get themselves into uh, a, a very costly war with uh, Rome earlier in, in the, was the 3rd century B.C., so right around the middle of the 3rd century B.C. of the First Punic War, which is fought over Sicily, really costly for both major participants, the Romans and the Carthaginians. They go to war again now with, with Hannibal a generation later. His father is, is one of the defeated leaders of the first war. And there's a great story that, that you, you were relating to me about this moment in Hannibal's youth when he is tasked by his father to take an oath that's re, uh, reported by the Greek historian Polybius. And it says, there's this, this description of this ceremony where Han- Hannibal takes an oath, and he swears that he will never become a friend to the Romans. Yeah. That's correct, uh, and this is in part part of the training and family tradition. Uh, Carthage was, like Rome in many ways, a product of its antecedents. It was established as a commercial outpost for seafaring Phoenicians, and it really became to model the nature of the people themselves. Uh, in contrast to Rome, which had a, a fairly stable Republican Senate. Uh, Carthage had a vacillating and corrupt government of self-serving merchants who really were out to look for the best deal at the cheapest cost. In fact, they did not have allies. They had mercenaries. Their army and their navy were both bought. And yet very effective in their own way. I mean, it's an interesting... So your point about kind of where does this then commitment come from, you're contending that for the Carthaginians, it was economic interests that, that drove the drove military service, not, not a commitment to any kind of political ideal. No, the political ideals at this time are relatively simple, and it's loyal to a, a fairly geographically confined nation state defined as a polis or a, or a city. In the case of Rome and Carthage, both of those are distinct entities, but they're both simple, distinct cities where the population largely is homogeneous and knows each other. Okay, so Hannibal, during the course of the Second Punic War, which he really, he instigates this war, does he have support from the leadership of Carthage when he essentially violates the treaty that 
that Carthage had reached with Rome and starts the Second Punic War? The government of Carthage at the time was highly factionalized. And uh, in fact, you know, one of the strongest factions was an, an economic and political rival to the Barcus, and they did not support him at all. So he will engage this campaign and start the war from Spain, uh, going across southern France and over the Alps into Italy, largely uh, on his own without support from Carthage. Now, a fun fact about Hannibal is that uh, in, in the mythology of G.I. Joe, when they form the great emperor Serpentor, who leads Cobra, which is the adversary of G.I. Joe, from the DNA of great military leaders of the past, Hannibal is one of those great military leaders that they, they get the DNA from in the G.I. Joe story to make Serpentor. So why, why does Hannibal have this amazing reputation? As a military leader, where does this come from? The source of his reputation is his tactical brilliance. In a number of early battles after crossing the Pyrenees and the Alps, elephants and all, uh, he surged essentially through hostile Celts uh, into the Po Valley, uh, and it was not without a heavy cost. But his uh, strategy was to strike directly at the heart of Rome. And in doing so, he had a very pronounced ability to select terrain well and position himself uh, in a way that almost secured victory for him in every single engagement. The most important of these is a double envelopment at Cani, which eradicated an entire army and included a large number of the Senate itself who were fighting as foot soldiers at the time. Uh, Including a consul, I think, was killed, right, at Cani? One one of the Roman consuls was killed? That's correct. Unfortunately for Hannibal, one of the survivors was uh, Cornelius Publius Scipio, who uh, later became his his downfall. So Hannibal's reputation, his military reputation, is interesting, right? Because here you have an example of a guy, uh, Canai, as you mentioned, is is his maybe his most famous battle. That's still studied, correct, by by military professionals as an example of a double envelopment. That's correct, and you can see the same procedure and same uh, maneuver employed by, for example, the Germans in World War II in the invasion of Poland. Uh, They studied the battle extensively. It was viewed by many of the Prussian uh, generals as the perfect battle. Yeah. And and then uh, prior to that, so at Lake Trasimene as well, he he suckers the the A Roman army, a smaller one, but still about 15,000 soldiers, into a terrible ambush, utterly annihilates the army, they drown or, or are hacked to death. Um, Basil Little Hart called that, I think, the textbook ambush. And then uh, you mentioned earlier his broader logistical achievement of getting the army into Italy in the first place, which, which was significant. So it seems like at the tactical and operational level, we have an example of somebody who's pretty extraordinary. And yet, where's this going? You know, what, what, where does he... F- where does he fail as a leader? Because ultimately, they lose, they lose the war. Uh, that's true. Uh, at, at both the uh, Tricina River, uh, the battle which you mentioned, uh, he defeated Cornelius Scipio the senior and also his, own, his brother, uh, Gaius. And as a result, Scipio senior was in fact rescued by his 18-year-old son, Cornelius Publius Scipio Jr. And uh, that... Develops a level of enmity and familiarity that uh, 
is typical and characterizes this particular war. It really is between two families and two individuals. But I think uh, even though this victory is repeated later against the relief uh, column at Trebia, which he, he decimates, and again at Cani, Hannibal chose the wrong strategy. His strategy was to attack at what he thought was the center of gravity and a key vulnerability of the Romans. That is, they had an alliance of nation-states and city-states throughout the uh, Iberian Peninsula. I'm sorry, not the Iberian, but the uh, Italian Italian Peninsula. And his intent was to disrupt this alliance and and cause defections to his side, which would eventually overwhelm Rome. Uh, And and he succeeds, right? I mean, he does kind of break up the... Roman control of Italy certainly is lost during during Hannibal's kind of rampage through the Italian countryside, right? I, I, I would say no. Uh, in fact, what happens is that he gets very reluctant outwise. He, for example, in surging through the Po Valley, he comes upon a group of, of Celts, which he would like to uh, ally to his cause. They refuse to do so. So he massacres the entire, entire city. Uh, subsequent Celts, of course, were rather quick to join up. But uh, they never really expressed the kind of loyalty that would be useful. And uh, Fabius, who was a a Roman uh, senator of the time, decides on a delaying factor. And the delaying factor is that he discerns that the army should not engage Hannibal directly. If it does, they're bound to be decimated. But at the same time, every time Hannibal invests a city, the city resists because they see just over the horizon all the standards and eagles of the Roman army. And they know that Hannibal or no Hannibal, Carthaginians or no Carthaginians, the Romans are coming back, and when they come back, it will not be a pretty sight. So he gets very little support from the city-states. In fact, uh, very few of them join him. Uh, They do not open their gates. It's a very difficult time for him, because he's trying essentially to live off the land and forage from the very people he's trying to make his allies. And, and Fabius uses the, the armies that he's commanding to harass Hannibal's forging expeditions, you know, make life difficult for him, but as you said, avoid a decisive engagement, avoid a larger scale battle. And, and he, Fabius accepts sort of, he, he basically cedes to Hannibal freedom to maneuver and, and some control of Italy, which is a politically costly strategy, very unpopular amongst many Romans. And, and in fact, Cannae happens as a result of a reaction kind of against the Fabian strategy, which, of course, is a complete and utter disaster. I mean, it's so bad that I, I, I can't remember where I read it, but for years, you know, Roman mothers would tell their children, you know, to behave or Hannibal's going to come <laughs> come and get you. I mean, that that's how how scary Hannibal is for the Romans sort of following Canai. He is, he is this truly existential threat to Rome. So, so here's where, here's where I want to ask you something, right? So um, you make an interesting point about, about how Hannibal struggles to control these Italian city states because they're thinking, you know, Hannibal, he's not from here. He's going to go home eventually. And when he goes home, the Romans will still be here. And we're going to have to deal with whatever that is. So if Hannibal had had a somewhat more moderate position towards the Romans going into the wars, so, so we started out talking about his oath that he would never make friends with the Romans, which you could sort of interpret as not even, let's not even set friendship as the standard, 
Never make peace with the Romans. So if you're never going to make peace, what's your war termination strategy? Really, that war termination strategy becomes a total annihilation. And in many respects, that's exactly what he wished to do. He wished to, to strike directly at the heart of Rome and, uh, and take it in a very short period of time. Uh, perhaps a longer strategy of uh, working with outlying areas in, in France, in Gaul, in, uh, in Sicily, in some parts of Greece— Uh, and some of the other islands in the Mediterranean would have worked out better for him in the long haul. Or he was not patient enough to engage that long-term strategy. Yeah, or or even using the strength of the position that he generated, especially after Cannae, to then negotiate with the the Romans, right? So sort of accept, okay, Rome, you you know, you you can continue to exist as a political entity, but here's here's what we're going to request. You know, we want Sicily back, you know, et cetera, et cetera, right? That could have worked, but negotiation is rather difficult when your negotiation position is based on an oath sworn on a right. on a sacrificial victim of eternal enmity. Yeah. That, it, that makes it very clear what your ultimate objective is going to be. Well, and there's this great quote from Moshe Diane: You don't make peace with your friends. You make peace with your enemies. And Hannibal's unwillingness to make peace... In, I think he really deprived himself of an opportunity to achieve something significant for Carthage. Because when he can't close the deal, he, he can't close the deal. And so one of the problems that Hannibal faces is I, I don't think he anticipates just how strong the Rome, Roman will is to persist in the war. After Cannae, he sends uh, captured Romans to Rome to help ne- to essentially negotiate or convey his demands. And the Romans treat them as as traitors they refuse to to hear them out and and what they're trying to do is convey to the army that okay for you this is a fight to the death it's it's either you, you win or or you die if you're captured you're you're dead to us and, and that roman indomitability when we talk about war being a contest of wills you know it's one of those things that we we sort of talk about a lot the this is the war that i always think of the the, the second punic war as one of between entities that were relatively similarly matched in terms of their capabilities and where ultimately the outcome seems to hinge on this, this question of, of will. It's just not, not being willing to make that final concession to your adversary. Yes, and that's particularly true in this case. Now, Hannibal's strategy, again, is to strike directly at Rome's center of gravity, and that's the coalition of the Allied states that provided the enormous manpower which filled and staffed the legions. So he needed quick and decisive victories uh, to convince the allies to abandon Rome and join his cause. However, having failed in obtaining that kind of support uh, and having his Carthaginian support uh, delivered stingily at best because of the opposition of the Hanno faction, he essentially was, was on his own in Italy. And that worsened his ability to plan and forced him to subsist by pillaging the very people he was trying to subvert to his cause. So the dichotomy of this position was never fully resolved. Is there something that we modern Americans can learn from Hannibal's experience? Because when I think about American experiences in war kind of since the Second World War, you have lots of examples of the U.S. military achieving some pretty significant battlefield gains. But we've, we've struggled to translate those 
battlefield gains into significant political achievements. I think that's especially true in Iraq and Afghanistan, sort of our post 9-11 wars, where the U.S. military has performed really brilliantly, kind of in what you would call battle. But the transition between sort of success in battle and, and success at the strategic level is, has been more challenging. And I wonder if you see some similar failings, maybe in, in the way we think about and execute strategy. I certainly do. And again, it really hinges on, the, on Clausewitz's concept of center of gravity. Uh, when you talk about a strategic center of gravity, one of the difficulties is it almost always boils down to one of the three things that Clausewitz identified as a remarkable trinity. That is the people, the uh, military forces, and the government or leadership each of which is necessary and essential if war is to be prosecuted. Uh, in an operational center of gravity, it gives you a much more clarified focus. Uh, Hannibal never developed either an operational center of gravity or an understanding of what a strategic center of gravity was. His sole purpose was to kill Romans, and the easiest way to do that was simply to engage them in tactical operations, and uh, where his skill and his pronounced ability to understand what was going on in a battlefield sense gave him a, a remarkable advantage. When the Romans took that away from him, he had no other recourse and had no real plan for developing and attacking the center of gravity he had. Uh, often this is the case in our own planning in modern times. We'll identify a center of gravity and uh, completely ignore it in our operational and tactical planning so that uh, we develop, instead of uh, a detailed, thought-out, analytical plan which arrives at decisive points, we make a list of what we think are decisive points and somehow try and backwardly connect them to a center of gravity. Uh, that's the very opposite of the way things should be. And what it results in is that many of the decisive points we, we select are not decisive at all, meaning they don't give you a... a a marked advantage in the process because they're not connected to the center of gravity. They, they look ambitious, they look effective, they often are very successful, but they do not result in a marked advantage. And that was the same thing Hannibal faced. His tactical successes could never be translated into dissolution of that alliance which existed among the Romans and their Italian uh, allies. Do you think there's always a center of gravity, though? I mean, do you, do you think that sometimes we're, we're kind of kidding ourselves in failing to recognize how flexible and adaptive some of these systems that we're dealing with are? I think sometimes we misinterpret what the center of gravity is. If you look at our doctrine, they describe center of gravity not as some sort of magic talisman that you possess which ensures victory, but as a decision. That is, you look at the complex uh, array of, of things which make up the battlefield and the context in which the war is to be fought. And from that, you select something which you think is important based on your best analysis. That becomes your center of gravity. And what it does is it allows you to continue planning against something which is concrete and understandable and identifiable. And that guides and directs the planning in a way which can determine what decisive points are effective. Uh, when you study battles in a, in a consistent way, what you find out of is you can make mistakes. When you work your way mentally through the process, you end up with decisive points that are indeed decisive. That is, they provide a marked advantage to the person who, who wins that outcome. 
And uh, this is very clear in the, the Second Punic War. It's also very clear in World War I. It's interesting. You said when you study battles, uh, is that maybe part of the problem? Is that our level of analysis sometimes is the wrong one? Because if you just study battles, right, the Second Punic War up to this point that we're talking about, you know, Hannibal basically moving freely through the Italian countryside, uh, really posing a significant threat to Rome. It looks like he's just he's made all the right choices. But in fact, he's made some critically bad choices that are going to reveal themselves very soon. Your, your point earlier about his lack of very strong support at home, in, that is to say in, in Carthage, ultimately he has to leave. Why does he have to leave Italy? He leaves Italy be, because he's dealing with a domestic challenge to his le- legitimacy. And so his campaign fails not because he loses a battle, right? It it, it fails because the Romans kind of, in many ways, it's maybe the Taliban strategy for dealing with the United States, which, which is, hey, let's hang around, stay in the fight until something happens in America that results in the departure of the U.S. military. Well, I think the parallels there are unmistakable. And I think that uh, the strategy that Rome uh, utilized and the strategy which the Taliban utilized is one which is reliant upon time. That is, no, no, nobody in the Taliban appears to own a pocket watch. Yeah. And as a result, they're willing to wait until such time as the Americans leave. The Romans, similarly, are awaiting a time when Hannibal will run out of logistical support, uh, have an inability to pay and to feed, to house, to close and arm his soldiers. And when that happens, uh, they're reduced to, to eating the remaining few elements, elephants. And uh, <laughs> Is that really what happened to the... <laughs> they ate them? I'm not sure they ate them, but uh, <laughs> by the time he comes to, to really uh, over the Alps and into, into Italy, uh, the elephants are all gone. They, they become an Foot, oddity of Some history. footstools, some nice, nice antique yes. footstools. <laughs> yeah. Interesting, he will get more later when he goes back to Africa, but uh, in Italy, he's, he's without them. And uh, in the process of doing this, he loses focus, and he is simply wandering around Italy, trying to get people to surrender, investing towns, having to abandon the investment because of, of the proximity of a formidable Roman force, which, if he moves to engage, departs. And uh, he simply just runs out ultimately of resources. And while he never runs out of will to fight, uh, many of the troops underneath him do not accompany him back to Africa. They abandon him when the, when the time comes that is convenient to do so. When he goes back, he's essentially removed from command, right? And then he regains command only when the Romans show up on the Carthaginian doorstep. That's correct. When he returns, uh, it's to opposition. It's to reassert himself. He's essentially removed by the Hanno faction, but the Hanno faction can offer no one of his capabilities to lead the Carthaginian forces, so they bring him back. But essentially, he's, uh, he is reduced in authority. He becomes the commander, but he, he must return to Carthage every time he needs to have a decision uh, approved by the Carthaginian leadership. This war between Rome and Carthage, uh, some have called it the first world war. It's certainly one of the first really truly um, 
at least that we have a decent record of, multi-domain conflicts because there's massive naval battles in, in the Punic Wars. But the Third Punic War results in the, in the utter destruction, famously, of the city of Carthage. Everyone is either killed or, or sold into slavery, and, and the civilization is just, it's just eliminated. It's destroyed. And, and you think about the stakes uh, sometimes I wonder about the inevitability of that. Do we, as human beings, have the capacity to coexist, you know, as sort of great powers? Recently, this has been in the news, the Thucydides trap, right? It's, the, it's uh, Athens and Sparta, right? But, but I actually think that's a terrible example. I mean, there are all kinds of reasons why Athens and Sparta probably should have been able to coexist, sharing a common sort of civilization and broadly cultural heritage and broadly language you know all 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 those reasons um but roman carthage right might be a better example of of kind of this fundamental great power competition between rival civilizations and and this is not a very happy example of that idea no it is not and and what you have are two different cultures which are based on antecedents which make them uh, almost mutually exclusive rome is predominantly built on an agrarian culture the idea of, uh, of Cincinnatus, who can be plowing one day, set down his plow, pick up his, uh, his sword and shield, defend Rome, then return to his plow the next day. Um, the idea is that you always return to your plow. It's an agrarian thing. It's one of patience. Farmers need to be patient when they plant their crops because they have to wait for them to grow on their own. It also creates a kind of common sense of political connection it, when you're an agrarian society. It does. Now, in contrast, the mercantile basis of the culture of Carthage is one of almost immediate factionalization. Everything becomes a rivalry. It's an economic rivalry. It's a family rivalry. It's a political rivalry. But the idea of competition is so ingrained in them that uh, they won't cooperate amongst themselves, much less with, with Rome or any other nation. also makes them very good, though, at, at forming um, alliances with sort of trading partners, right? I mean, one of the fascinating things about Panable's army is how polyglot it is, how diverse it is. It is polyglot and it is diverse, but that uh, that works against him because he's never really to uh, able to besiege towns as a result. Um, you know, the, the idea of multinationality has with us certain weaknesses and he's never really able to, uh, to grow those. His allies are always tempted to rebel. Uh, and he's never able to overcome the large uniform uh, Italian armies which, which face him. At the same time, the factionalization of the, the leadership back in Carthage is never able to overcome its own rivalries to make, provide him uniform support, which is something that the Romans could almost be guaranteed. GK, thank you so much for, for joining us today. This has been a, a great discussion of a fascinating and important military figure of the past, in this case, a very distant past. I think in our great captain series so far, this is the furthest back we've gone. I, I think if we talk about Alexander, that'll, that'll be further back a little bit. But um, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. And again, uh, you know, this is a something which is not just a, a third century BC lesson. If one loses sight of strategy and focuses on tactical proficiency, you should not be surprised if your strategy ends up being a failing one. And with that, I, I can't top that for, for an insight. Thank you very much for joining us here in the War Room, and, and we hope you will join us next time. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. 
The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.